and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses fit. And in this week's episode, we're going to do a subject that I have wanted to do for a while now, which is to talk about the environment in which all of the other conversations we have are nested. And by that, I mean, we talk a lot about complexity. We talk a lot about the relationship between process and systems and people. And we did that a lot when we talked about John Boyd and we did it a bit when we talked last week about games both of our games actually i think had a mechanical or a process element to them that was made ever more complex by the human dynamic and the emotional and sort of teamwork aspects of it so i really wanted to sort of expand on that and explore what is quite a common parlance now which is the concept of vuca so i I love when you said common parlance I have not heard the term VUCA before. I've been resisting the urge to make Veruca jokes, but I don't think that befits the seriousness of our discussions. But come on, VUCA, tell, tell me tell me about VUCA. Let's, let's okay. break perhaps, it down. Perhaps then it's uh, less common than I thought. So VUCA originated in the US Army War College and about... 10 years ago or so, I don't know exactly when, the US Army started talking about having to think about operating in a VUCA environment. And then since then, a little bit like the OODA loop that we talked about with John Boyd, it broke out of that military sphere and into the world of business and strategy and and sort of wider conversation. And VUCA, at its simplest, simply means volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity so it's so, a it's a way to frame the conversation and a way to break it down as opposed to necessarily being a particularly new concept yeah these absolutely. have always existed yeah they have and, and i think a lot of the conversation now is about are things becoming more volatile uncertain complex and ambiguous and the u.s army use of this term was about how battlefields were becoming all of those things because yes volatility has always been part of in fact all of them have volatility uncertainty complexity ambiguity have always been part of warfare it's what Karl von Clausewitz referred to as the fog of war but I think what they were trying to encapsulate was the fact that ever more things are compounding to make the amount of volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity grow and therefore the way that we respond to problems have to change. It's I'm you know, I think I've mentioned this a few times before. I'm very nervous about this idea that, oh, well, of course, we're special and everything's different and everything's going faster. However, that isn't interesting in the sense that which is the ability for us to address those, whether it's more or less or the same, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. But a s- systemic way to understand and address that, that's far more interesting. I want to talk about automation, digitization, globalization, disintermediation, augmentation. And I think 
most importantly about those things is the compounding effects of them. But before I do, I'm just going to set the context here. So, Chris, you know what a transistor is, don't you? Oh, yes. It's a, it's a thing inside a silicon chip or a system. And if I'm right, remember rightly, this is going back. Oh, by the way, I have an HND in software engineering. So if if I make a fool of myself, then I'm going to blame my my uh, uh, polytechnic that I went to uh, or Hatfield University, University of Hertfordshire now. Anyway, it's a thing that is on or off, I believe. That is the point of the transistor. Yeah, absolutely. It's a switch. Ooh, I got that right. That worried me, actually. I thought I was going to get that wrong. <laughs> so the original transistor built by Bell Labs, because it is a, a very specific kind of switch that allows digital logic circuits to work. But the original transistor built by Bell Labs in 1947 was large enough that it was pieced together by hand. By contrast, the current standard, and there are smaller, but the current standard transistor is 22 nanometers. And that means that more, more than 100 million transistors could fit onto the head of a pin. Got another two of these, and I think they all bring together to kind of give us an insight of how much things have changed. Intel's first microprocessor, the 4004, was introduced in 1971, and its CPU ran 4,000 times slower than the current Intel CPUs. The transistors, each transistor, used 5,000 times more energy than current CPUs. And the price per transistor was 50,000 times more than they are now. So exponentially smaller, faster, cheaper. And someone's going to tell me that was the wrong use of the word exponential. But let's well, go with that, which is yeah. it, in terms of the it's not just the change. It's the scale of change that if you could imagine, well, how many transistors could we fit in a small room? You'd say, well, today it's 10. Maybe we could fit 200 as opposed to 22,000 on a pin or whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I think we are or have been dealing with exponential change because all of this relates to Moore's law. And most of our listeners will know and will have heard of Moore's law. But effectively, that's the idea that every year, processing power can double. And there's been lots of predictions about where the limit of Moore's law is going to be, because clearly the, the laws of physics are going to limit us at some point. And they thought um, it was going to finish last year or something, and yeah, it didn't. Yeah, every time it, it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not for me. I, I don't really you know, understand the, the physics of CPU production. But we are probably getting towards the limit of standard digital processing but of course we're on the very edge of discovery for quantum processing where we go from two-state transistors so on or off to multi-state where you have on off or both in quantum systems which is called superposition and, and something we don't need to get into let's, right i was now. about to say let's let's hold that for another episode <laughs> yeah but my my point in bringing up those statistics is we we as humans don't really deal with exponentials particularly well. I think the two years or so of pandemics and discussions around statistics, both in the run-up to outbreaks and post-outbreaks, 
I think have demonstrated quite well that we're we're not particularly good at understanding the implications of exponential growth. And these things tend to happen. They seem to start slowly and then they go very, very quickly out of control before you recognize what's happened. Well, and just, just to give it context today, because I'm hoping no one says I don't really care about how fast chips go. Now apply this principle to the development of AI. And now all of a sudden you've got this idea of, well, we're already going blimey. AI is going to take our jobs in inverted commas. Yes, but in five, 10 years time, can we even imagine what AI will be doing? So I, I think it's... But I think this is kind of the, what the whole idea around VUCA is. So, and, and of course, this applies not just to technological growth. It applies to the connections between systems. We're going to talk quite a lot in this episode, I suspect, about the, the failure of Kodak to see the market changing or, or whatever it is. These kind of quite cliched now commercial examples of failure to adapt. But I was just reading something about the German foreign minister tweeting about Italy and changing temperatures. And it got me thinking about the fact that we are now starting to see rapid change in the climate, and that is affecting lots and lots of other systems. So we're seeing knock-on effects in migration, in crop growth, in food production, in the ability to do transport, in global conflict, in wildfires. You know, these things all have compounding effects. We are living in an age where, in comparison to the recent past, things are changing faster than they were before. And um, I guess, I guess even even if we can get our heads around the idea of exponential change. Yeah. So if you said to me, tell me about um, global warming, oh, well, the crops will change. Yes, but what's the result of the crops changing? Oh, well, that's movement of people. And what's the, what's the, what's the knock-on effect of movement of people? Oh, well, there's political changes. Well, what's the knock-on effect? of And all of a sudden, it's the compound effect which really gets you and you didn't see it coming. Yeah. So if I said quantum computing will exponentially grow the amount of computing power, that will exponentially grow the amount of available data, which will change the way that we can manipulate big data, which will speed up the way that machine learning algorithms can adapt and evolve, which will make the way that we do the Internet of Things very, very different, which will change the nature of automation and robotics. That's a very linear path. We haven't really explored the compound system. All I've done is taken you on a journey between one emerging technology and, and several others. Yeah. And yet you can probably already get a sense of it's going to be very, very difficult to predict what the world of automation looks like in 10 or 15 years' time. So you've, you've successfully worried me on a very <laughs> pleasant evening that we're recording this. So come on then, let's let's now apply this to VUCA. How does VUCA, or the concepts behind it, how does that start to address this complexity and uncertainty? So we've got to break down what each of these things are before we can then start to look at how they affect systems and problems. So what do we mean by volatility? Well, volatility refers to the speed of change of a system. And we've talked about this when we talked about John Boyd and Oodleaks, and we, we were talking about, is it about going round the loop faster 
or is it about understanding tempo? And so if we talk about acceleration rather than velocity, what we mean is the change in speed and volatility is simply more change in speed. So things will go fast and then they'll slow down. Things will be difficult to predict as a result of change in volatility. One of the ways of, of sort of thinking about this is to think about frequency of events. If volatility is increased, then the frequency of change is increased. And if you think about what frequency refers to in terms of waveforms, you get your peaks and troughs. If you have an increase in frequency, you have more peaks and more troughs. And we're seeing that with the weather, aren't we? Well, I've, I was going to say, I think the weather is the best example. And uh, again, not, not a climate change expert, but I think I see too many people saying, well, one and a half degrees is a pleasant change in temperature. It makes our summers nicer. What could be wrong with that? And actually, the problem is not the 1.5 degrees necessarily. It's the bell curve of events that happen on either edge. So you say, well, when it was 1.5 degrees less, the chance of torrential rain was one in a thousand. It's now one in 500 or one in 250. And so it's, it's the, it's the occurrence of those other things, which is actually the kicker that gets you in a bit of trouble. Well, exactly. So with weather patterns, if you think about a, a slight increase in global average temperatures increases the frequency change in hot to wet weather and so what you end up with is hotter drier periods followed by shorter wetter periods and that is a it's a frequency change and the ground isn't able to cope with those sudden changes anywhere near as well as a longer winter and a longer cooler summer so what you end up with is baked earth followed by sudden downfalls, and that's, that's what creates More the flooding. flooding. We end up with things like longer, hotter periods that mean drier, drier wood, drier scrubland, increasing the risk of forest fires, increasing the risk of uh, out-of-control natural fires. Shorter but wetter periods on top of that mean that you also end up with severe, greater risk of more frequent and worse Flash flooding. So that's volatility. Um, and we've got to just, 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 just before we move off volatility, I think using global warming is quite a sort of a, a, a charged topic. Do you have a good example of volatility in the military, in the in the in the straight up military world? Because I I have to wonder whether there are good examples of increased volatility in the military sphere. Um yeah. So we talked about John Boyd loop and the relationship between you and the capacitor in trying to change their perception of what is happening not necessarily by being faster than them but by disrupting their expectation so dislocating their understanding of reality and we used the example of the Entebbe raid as a, as a really good example of changing somebody's perception by the Israeli special forces driving onto the base in Entebbe, pretending to be uh, Idi Amin and his convoy. The, the change in situation from 
everything normal to, oh my God, we're under attack. The volatility was increased by the fact that they didn't recognize they were under attack for longer. And so the situation changed faster. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I was, I mean, I, I, maybe this is just topical for me, but I, what's interesting to me about what goes on in Ukraine in, at a high level is that there's lots of people who were predicting what conflict would look like. And that was all new. And now they're going, actually, we have to think about different things we hadn't thought about before. So we, we, you know, we, we, we read it today in the press, how the Russians are using mines and artillery in a way that people almost had forgotten that was happening. And so now yeah. people are having to go, oh, we were just getting our heads around drones, but now we have to think about mines again. So I, I don't know, maybe that, maybe yeah. that's, I'm just drawn to it because it's a current but at, the same, at the same time as that conversation, we're also only, what, 12 weeks ago, we were talking about how the Wagner forces were putting a huge amount of pressure on the Ukrainians in Bakhmut. Well, now look at what we're talking about. We're talking about the probable assassination of Prigozhin by Putin and the collapse of the Wagner forces. So trying to anticipate, trying to predict, trying to understand, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in this world of connected systems, really, really difficult. So well, maybe, maybe this is a good time now to move on to the uh bit of VUCA uncertainty because I am uncertain about what is going to happen next let's let's maybe move on to that let's talk about uncertainty yeah so uncertainty refers to and, and none of these you know definitions should be new to anybody but uncertainty refers to the extent to which we can confidently explain a given situation or confidently make predictions about the future linked so, to volatility presumably there's a connection these are, there. These, these are all linked, and we're gonna we're gonna see this. But we, when we talk about risk in decision making, we talk about the balance of quantifiable probabilities, don't we? So a risk is about if I take this decision, if I do something as opposed to not doing something, I am exposing myself to the negative probability of X versus the positive probability of y and and that's how risk calculus works and and sometimes we have to we have to make assumptions about the data and stuff and we use averages and, and lots of statistics but effectively we are weighing up probabilities uncertainty is where you're going to have to start making decisions but you don't have enough information to be able to make confident probability assessments so risk management is about knowing the outcomes, having a sense of the probabilities, and then working out whether the opportunity is worth the gamble. Uncertainty, you don't have that luxury. And so you're not able to confidently lay out in front of a decision maker, it's a tough choice because you know the probability of the really good result is small, but the expected gain is massive, as opposed to the probability of the negative result being quite large, but you've missed that opportunity gain. And, and, and having a sensible discussion about where your risk appetite is. With uncertainty, you can't do that. And so you're starting to have to make decisions without having that comfort blanket of some sort of risk assessment. Really difficult. 
And, it, and it, it, it feels to me it's a bit insidious because it's not we're in high uncertainty. It's it's all it's all very fluid and it's difficult to sort of quantify these. I mean, I'm I'm as we're going through this, I'm thinking I'm particularly interested at the bit about how how to use the system to to come up with better outcomes, but it's it's feeling unsurprisingly eerily familiar to the business world in terms of things are changing in the business world. There are more competitors, there are more you know customers are doing different things in different ways and changing their behaviors uncertainty you know we don't know who what's going to happen next um you know a competitor might go bust a competitor might come out with a new product so let's let's move yeah. on to, to to the car car well i i just want to before we do just make the point that if you apply a certainty risk approach to an uncertain problem or the problem of uncertainty you end up potentially compounding the problem because what you end up doing is trying to quantify the unquantifiable and giving either false hope in that you've done some statistical analysis and you're giving a probability, but it's it's based on absolute uncertainty in the in the figures, but you're making it seem like you have a handle on on the probability. And and a really clear sign of this is if somebody gives you a statistic that is around 50% of something happening, they might as well not giving you a statistic at all. <laughs> yeah. And if you remember weather app from probably not that long ago, it would say something like the chances of rain in the next hour is 50%. Well, you might as well not have the app at that point because the data underlying it is so uncertain that there is no, there's no context to help make the decision. So the statistical risk analysts applying their trade or quantity surveyors or market, any analyst, in fact, any kind of analyst applying structured, rigorous statistical analysis to uncertainty actually exacerbates the problem because all you do is false confidence. You. Well, you give false confidence as well. So complexity Oh, we just before we get there, I just want to make the point we should put risk in there somewhere because we're heading towards Veruca. Now, I know that was a joke <laughs> that wasn't very funny about 20 minutes ago, but, you know, I'm willing to beat the death out of a joke just for giggles. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> go back to the car. Yeah. Well, we can take uncertainty and risk. Um, yeah. Um, complexity. <laughs> complexity refers to the number of factors that we need to take into account and the relationship that those factors have on each other. And I've mentioned this before in the podcast. I've talked about the Kinefin framework. I don't know if you remember, Chris, talking about the Kinefin framework and the types of problems. But there are effectively... And this yes. Is I, by the way, I frantically tried to remember this. So it's yeah, this, this is David Snowden's model for quantifying problem types. And what used to be obvious problems, just to make it a bit neater, he's called uh, clear problems. So that they all start with a C, which is nice. So you have clear problems. Clear problems are ones where as soon as you know you have a problem, you also know what the solution is. So it's something you've seen many times before, easy to fix. The traffic light has gone red. I know I now have to stop. That is a clear problem. It might slow me down and I might be on a tight time schedule, but I know what the solution is. I have to stop. I have to wait for the traffic and then I will continue. The circuit has broken, and when I look at the circuit, 
the wire is pulled out and not connected to the battery. I know what the solution is to the problem. Now all I need to do is apply my resources to that problem set. For clear problems, we tackle all the time and we tend to allow, we tend to delegate people to be allowed to fix uh, clear problems as part of their job without having to seek any kind of further guidance. Then you have complicated problems. Complicated problems are problems where the solution is not immediately obvious. And so you require a level of investigation, analysis. So you need certain tools, certain skills, certain access to information and data. But given enough of those things and time, of course, you will be able to come up with a solution to the problem. The traffic light is not on and I have to decide whether I should go or not go to use your um, analogy. Depending on the environment, that would be... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking just that that one is more complex, which what is, about... are, are there cars coming? Are there not cars coming? Is it multiple? Is it more, you know... more likely, or an easier example is perhaps I go to start my car in the morning, turn the key in the ignition or press the start button, and it ticks over, but nothing happens. There are multiple reasons why that might be the case. And unless I'm mechanically minded, unless I have experience of working with vehicles, I'm not probably in a very good position to be able to solve that problem. So I'm going to need to find somebody with the requisite tools, experience. I'm going to have to give it time. But ultimately, through a diagnostic process, a mechanic is going to find the fault and rectify whatever the fault is, replace the part, mend the part, change the sensor, whatever it is, solve the problem. That is a complicated problem. We're talking about complexity. Complexity are problems where systems, as I've said, we're talking about there are so many factors that we cannot, no matter how much time we spend analysing the problem, no matter how much data we try and collect, no matter how much experience we've got, no matter how much money we throw at it, we cannot, by gazing at the problem, solve it. So these are problems where you need to probe the problem. And that means you have to interact with the problem space to learn from how your interaction changes that system. Politics, warfare, stock market, these are all complex systems. And learning by doing and learning through trial and error, experimentation, gives you a sense of what works and what doesn't work. Interestingly, machine learning works off this complex problem process. So machine learning doesn't work out the answer to the problem. Machine learning works out higher probabilities to get closer to the correct answer. So that's why you go through those learning loops to refine down the answers. Complex problems require a an investigative, a probing investigative approach to cause and effect by affecting the system. That's Often these will be novel, I guess. There's there's when there's new technology and and there's a new combination of factors. I don't think that doesn't necessarily always the case, but presumably that that increases the chances of complexity. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I also think we, we've talked a lot in this podcast about things where people interact with mechanical systems, therefore making that system a complex 
system. So, oh, yeah, the aeroplane, John Boyd. The aeroplane, the John Boyd example. The F-86, working out how fast the F-86 can fly, what its rate of climb is, what its wing speed is, what its maximum altitude is. These are all complicated problems that can be worked out through analysis. Once you add a pilot into that system and say, how effective is it up against another complex system, the MiG-15, well, now you're into complexity. Now it doesn't matter how many aeronautical engineers you get, how many ground tests you do, how many times you throw it into a wind tunnel, you're now talking about the human dynamic of Korean or Soviet pilots versus American pilots versus in interacting with these mechanicals. You're into a world of complexity. And that's yeah. where boys do the loops, talking about connecting frameworks, working out probing problem space, it, that's where we have to start looking at experimentation. You're doing a really good job here of making me hands head in hands. Oh my God, how can we come to any answers on this? So come on, let's let's let we there's there's light at the end of this this VUCA tunnel. Maybe ah, it, ah. Only get, it only gets darker, I'm afraid, because now we have ambiguity. And ambiguity refers to a lack of clarity about how to interpret a given situation. So if you compound some of these things, you might start to see how you can really create difficulty because ambiguity might hide the fact you even have a complex problem and make it look like you have a complicated problem. But let's just take that one step back. So ambiguity refers to a lack of clarity about how to interpret a given situation. Why would that be the case? Well, maybe the information that you have is incomplete. Maybe it's out of context. Maybe it's out of date. Maybe you've got competitors that are feeding you false information. Maybe there are errors in your data as a result of erroneous measurements. But all of these things will add to a level of ambiguity in understanding what the situation you're facing is. We had a whole podcast episode not that long ago talking about how you might want to hide information from other people how you might want to obfuscate, dismiss and malinformation. We talked about, you know, the moral boundaries and gray areas in that space, but we live in a world of deep fakes. We live in a world of deception and we live in a world of incomplete information. Well, yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was, I was applying it to my world, which is um, a competitor lowers their price. Is that because they're in trouble and they need to sell more? Is that because they have a strategy where they have plenty of money in the bank and if they lower the price, they can beat you? Is it a sign that um, there's lots of interpretations? It, it, it seems to me the slippery thing is, is talking about these things in itself is quite slippery. Measuring these yeah. things feel even slipperier, even slipperier, yeah, so, more slippery. So this is what, with ambiguity, the, the model for looking at the problem set i think that works quite well is i don't know if you remember in 2003 donald rumsfeld in a press briefing oh talking about no knowns unknowns no no yeah that actual framework is quite like and i call it rumsfeldian logic it's not of course but it's quite a useful model so if you have no knowns those are things that you know that you are aware of that are accurate. 
if you have unknown knowns, and, and of course this, well, as an individual, your unknown knowns are the things that are probably in your system one thinking that don't occur to you, but are instinctive, the intuition. In a team or an organization, that might be stuff that another part of the organization already knows, but you don't personally know. So you need to create those communication channels to, to turn those into known knowns. Then you have known unknowns. These are the things that you know you, you need don't to know. into the environment, yes, but you also know that you need to go and yeah. collect that information or data. And in my world, in the military, that's where we would conduct surveillance and reconnaissance. That's where we would use the tools like uncrewed vehicles, satellites, human sources, you know, running agents on the ground, sending reconnaissance teams to go and look over the hill. You know, we would do surveillance and reconnaissance to try and close those gaps. So we would collect current information about situation to turn you, known unknowns into known knowns. I was about to say, but the point about that is you know there is something you want to or need to understand. So in other words, I'm going to fly the unmanned aircraft over this area because I need to know whether there's something there or not. And I'm guessing the unknown unknowns is that was great. You knew you needed to look over there, but of course you'd forgotten you needed to look over there or you hadn't even imagined over here was something that you needed to think about. Yeah, and I, I'm very conscious that you can get wrapped up in the language here, but unknown unknowns, the things that you don't know that you need to know, there are, firstly, there are unknown unknowns that you're never going to know and that have no interest in helping you solve the problem. And the idea of trying to get as much data as you can to be omnipotent is a full errand. So what we've got to try and do here is to understand what possibility there is so that we can start to use things like hypotheses, things like scenario development, things like red teaming to start to expand our questions to move some of the things from unknown unknowns into known unknowns. And by hypothesizing and by sharing those sort of red team stories about, well, what if this happened? What we're starting to do is expand out our known unknowns by moving questions from things we hadn't even thought about into things we have thought about and now we need to answer. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna call a halt because frankly, after that known unknown unknown knowns with the known knowns and all of that wrapped up in the most fantastic phrase of the day rumsfeldian philosophy let's take a very quick break because i am really hoping there is some light at the end of the tunnel because you've now helped convince me there is no possible way on earth we can predict or act on anything but i know you're going to save us after the break so we'll see you in a couple of seconds straight after this break Okie doke. Okay, we're back. Hopefully everyone has recovered from Rumsfeldian philosophy. It's another T-shirt, by the way. There's a big range of T-shirts we got. So we've talked about VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, 
Complexity. Complexity, thank you. And uh, ambiguity. Ambiguity. So, yeah, volatility, the pace of change. We're talking about the changing acceleration, deceleration of change rather than velocity itself. Uncertainty, the range of possible outcomes, the range of possible things that have happened, things that are happening, are pushing us beyond certainty in statistical analysis. Complexity, the amount of factors that are interacting to create systems of systems are such that you cannot, from an observational position, understand what is happening. You therefore have to probe the problem. And by probing the problem, you are part of that system and therefore you are changing it. So in a reference to Heisenberg, you, you can't observe something without affecting it and therefore you have to probe the problem space. You have to have an attempt to see what, what might work, to see what has a positive effect, what has a negative effect and therefore learn by doing. And then uncertainty is the fact that the information you have might be incomplete, false, out of date, out of context. And then we talked about the Rumsfeldian logic as a way of So we started 40 minutes ago. This was sort of a 10-year-old concept about trying to address this pace of change. So now we've got a way of talking about these factors. What do we do with them? So this is where... We've talked a lot on this podcast already about a lot of these, the things that help us manage a VUCA environment. So if we think about volatility to start with, we've talked about the fact that you have to psychologically shift your team, your organization's culture from one of being comfortable with the now and uncomfortable with change to one of being accepting that change is a continuation. And so this is what Pia talked about a couple of weeks ago, where she was talking about rather than getting people to think about how do I get from A to B, they just shift their whole psyche to we are constantly striving to get better. Being comfortable with things changing around you is not a natural state. We are, as a species, designed to seek certainty, to seek safety. And well, and arguably, we're more effective when we have certainty. It allows us to dedicate more time. Well, so I, 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 I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly not disagreeing. If you take it in terms of a person versus a situation, but if we're competitive against other people. 100%. 100%. We can play on their inability and ineffectiveness in volatility by making the situation seem more volatile. And this is what John Boyd was talking about in terms of you know, shrinking your time and stretching their time. This is about creating conditions. One of the things I would say is, are you impacted by change or are you causing change? If you can cause change, you now have a bit more control. And we talked about building teams that are comfortable with volatility when I talked about leading uh, small teams in counter-piracy operations. And we talked about slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And we talked about small team dynamics where everybody gets to report what they see. The person at the front of the stack calls the shot. All of those kind of things. 
lead to teams that become not only comfortable with volatility, but because they know they have a competitive edge over their competitor, embrace it. Well, I'll, and I'll I'll layer on top of that because, of course, these things sort of intertwine. That's what agility is about. Let's not make a plan for the next year. Let's be agile and make a plan for the next two weeks and then inspect and adapt. And what you're building there is a sense that at one level, I'm oversimplifying, you don't need to worry what's going to be happening in a year because if you do a really good job of understanding what happens every two weeks, the, the amount of volatility is less interesting. It doesn't matter. We can either have changed a lot or a little. We could have sped up and slowed down a lot as long as we, and I think I think to some degree what you're talking about here is acting like a heat-seeking missile. The whole point about a heat-seeking missile is it doesn't aim for a point in the sky. It recognizes it's going to keep changing because that point in the sky moves. And its goal is to arrive at the same place as the thing at some point. Yes, I am. And we'll talk about acting strategically in a moment. But I think more importantly, I want lots of people in the organization to act like like heat-seeking missiles. And therefore, you, when you talk about agility, we're back to our old friend, Mission Command. The yeah. ability to have lots and lots of small teams that can act relatively independently based on the current conditions they find themselves in, but recognizing why. Recognizing what the organization as a whole is trying to achieve and therefore being able to apply judgment based on their local conditions that are relevant to them in the moment, making judgment calls on what would be best for the organization as a whole. And this is Alstrap tactic or mission command, telling people what to achieve, but not being didactic in telling them how to achieve it. And of course, just to keep things, I think, I think the the theme of today is this is hard is and while you're doing that mission command while you're being agile also having half a thought for the success of the greater system yeah. so we talked we, we talked about this in terms of agile teams and scrum um you might be forgiven for saying well i've been given mission command and therefore for me to be successful i will do x yes but X may actually be counterproductive in the broader system. And so we have to keep a balance of those things. It's not as Absolutely. simple as go do the only thing you need to do to be successful. Yeah. And so you need those, those fast feedback loops. So understanding the wider context of the problem, you're focused on the objective and you don't recognize that the situation around that objective has changed. That objective may now not be relevant or at worst might be counter productive to the overall strategic goals of the organization so that is your point about every two weeks measuring rather than every two years and therefore being happy to adjust but that's just the operational process adjust what you're doing not redesigning the strategy every two weeks yeah yep and that's where we talked before about keeping those communication channels open so people understand why what they're being asked to do is change slightly, yet it still relates to that overall strategic vision that the organization has, that they've been told about, that they're part of. And they need to buy into that, of course. It keeps striking me just how, how fundamentally hard this stuff is. 
I mean, we we spend hours and hours and hours talking about these things. And I'd like to think that all the people listening say, yeah, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. But to be successful, you are living in a world of complexity. And what I mean by that is complexity in the sense of every single episode has 20 things you need to have a handle on and think about and get right. And so even if you know all of this stuff, even if you've got the brain the size of a planet, and I certainly don't, actually, it's how do you keep all of this stuff in your head at the same time? Think about how to, to act on it. It is really hard. It so I what I would say, though, is by its, by its nature, what we're talking about here is not relying on single people with brains the size of planets to do this. That's true. That's what, true. What we're doing is we're building cultural teams that are agile, that are strategic, that are connected, but they're not connected in a rigid hierarchical way. They're connected in an organic way. And this is where building improved decision-making systems into your team is really important. And what do I mean by that? I mean, connecting, understanding to change. And we're going to have a whole session on effect-based decision-making. But effectively, what we need to do is we need to recognize that every time we do something, every time a competitor does something, every time a third party actor does something, a customer, a client, a supplier, they have changed the environment. And they have probably added more unknown unknowns, more known unknowns, more known knowns, and more unknown knowns to our system. And the more we're connected to each other, the more that we're talking about the questions we have, the more we're starting to answer those questions, identify problems, identify questions that we need to answer, the more we can connect change as it happens to the decisions that we're making about what we need to do. And this comes back to this idea of the C-suite thinking they've got a handle on what's going on and making lots of strategic decisions whilst the building around them is on fire. The, um, because it, they're not getting external information into their decision-making processes. It, it occurs to me, this is a re, this is quite a good point to pick out. And I'm going to generalise here from my own experience, which I'm sure people will tell me isn't the common experience. And that is most businesses I've worked in, if I think really hard, don't think a lot about the competition. Now, There'll be people screaming at me of work and me saying, oh, Chris, don't you remember we had those five meetings about that particular competitor? And by the way, one really interesting example from years and years ago was Adobe and a company called Canva. And there was a period of two months where Canva was going to kill Adobe. That's what everyone was saying. And so there was an example where you would say, well, you see, there you're wrong, Chris. We talked about the competitor. And the reality is, and I think this is true for most businesses, it was actually pretty skin deep. It was a passing thing. And I wonder whether there is a real difference in some respects between civilian and military. So when you talk about your competitor in a military space, particularly maybe maybe in an active conflict, maybe that's the difference in active conflict, you are highly focused. It is your day job to understand what the competition is doing, the enemy is doing. Whereas, in fact, maybe this is the point. Right now, we talk about how do you make a military fit for the future? Well, we're not in combat. And so, you know, our ability to understand what the competition is doing from a military sense 
is the, maybe that's quite like business where it's it's actually far more fleeting and far more well I, yeah let, let me give you an example of an organization that nearly because they were an incumbent failed to adapt and then realized because they saw what their competitor was doing but firstly they recognized they were a competitor when they came from a left field market sector walmart walmart nearly missed the online sales boom as an incumbent almost it's not a monopoly but but one of the big retail giants of the north american market nearly didn't really bother doing online sales and there's a quote from a senior walmart executive from not that long ago where they talk about online sales never outstripping one of their single physical retail warehouses then they recognized what amazon was doing before amazon got into the grocery or tried to get into the grocery and domestic market and they pivoted and they they doubled down on their online retail and now walmart is the second largest online retailer in north america and the dominant online retailer of the domestic produce market i didn't know that i didn't that's interesting so a lot of people when they talk about vuca talk about sort of upstart innovative young companies you know beating the incumbents who are too slow and not agile enough to move and they reference you know kodak or nokia or blockbuster and yeah, they are really, really good examples of where this can go catastrophically wrong, but they're also cliches. The incumbent has the advantage because they have big market share, they have money, they have the ability to invest more in understanding what is happening. And we're starting to see that, you know, the tech sector that gets this really, really well, you know, one of their big strategies is to identify where the emerging innovative capabilities are and then just acquire them so they're not trying to beat their competitors they're identifying who the competitors of the future are going to be and then acquiring them so they're on their team the the currently that the monopolies commission is really really struggling with what the new rules are to the old system they are struggling with their own booker if you like so this is not a question of you know fast agile young new companies outsmarting old rusty backward incumbents this is just about organizations of all sizes recognizing environmental change including that of the competitor so yeah don't focus on your competitor in the same way that don't focus on your customer or don't focus on technology have an awareness of how technologies competitors and customers relate what is the system and then start to build your strategy around being customer focused, understanding how the customer's needs are going to change over the next 10, 5, 10, 15 years. So getting back to, to one of the things we absolutely need to do, we've got to understand the culture that we're part of. And that's, we've talked about the, the real value of understanding culture and leadership being one side of a coin and organizational culture being the other. All of these conversations around being more strategic, you know, have better feedback loops, be more agile, have better decision delegation. You know, none of that works if you don't understand the culture that you're in. So just talking about psychological safety 
doesn't give you psychological safety. Just talking about delegated decision-making doesn't give you delegated decision-making. Just talk about being more risk-taking and doing more experimentation and being a learning culture doesn't make you a more risk-taking. Next, you're going to be saying just talking about leadership doesn't make us good leaders. And obviously, we're going to have to draw a line in the sand there. But no, I mean, I think I think that is precisely the point. Just talking about leadership doesn't make you a good leader. Um, and I don't think either of us have ever claimed to be, you know, above average leaders or good leaders or, you know, we have been on our journeys and we have learned. And I, I think actually there's probably a, a podcast we should do where we're quite honest with each other about where we've been not very good leaders. And, Ooh, and that I, would be a more, good one. Yeah, I think there's more to learn from personally what you failed to do and what you've learned by doing doing it wrong and learning the hard way than there is by talking about why you're such a good leader and this is one of the reasons in the military i find i've gone gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here but we talk a lot about leadership and hopefully we're going to have an episode soon with the army leadership center and we talk a lot about leadership but i've almost never seen any senior commander talk about where they got it wrong we're quite happy to talk about yeah. examples of where it's been done wrong but it's almost as if there's a taboo about talking about the fact that you had to go on a growth journey and you had to learn so in defense of us i would say neither of us is saying we are better leaders than than anybody else what i would say is these conversations are really, really good at drawing out lessons that we've learned. I, I think, yeah, I mean, and, and this wasn't meant to sort of draw us into whether we're good or bad. I, if you if you said, how would I like for other people to describe us? We are curious leaders. Yeah. And that that's that's where the lot that's where the where the description begins and ends, whether we're good or not. But it's it's the curiosity that really makes the difference. And it's it really is the theme of all of these conversations, which is there is value in these in in learning, exchanging yeah. ideas and the reflection of ideas. Look, we're, we're coming towards the end of this. And I so I, I just want to finish the, the last few of these. And you've just mentioned the next one on my list, which is never stop learning. So if you want to get an, a competitive advantage in a VUCA environment, then you have to be broad in your assessment of what that environment is, which means being really curious and interested in things that don't seem like they matter to your market sector. And anybody that talks about understanding complexity talks about the need to be broad in your curiosity into different market sectors, into different subjects, into... And we talked about Oppenheimer the other day, and Oppenheimer had a... A, a really interesting passion for, for reading foreign languages and reading texts in other languages and, and religious texts, which doesn't, on the face of it, strike you as particularly relevant to a quantum theorist, but actually it made him a better quantum theorist in the management of a big complex project. So don't stop learning. You have to read, you have to explore, you have to debate, you have to experiment. But also you have to share ideas and you have to build up a diverse network that challenges each other to explore these things. And networks is the next thing. I think really interesting example here is Microsoft versus the GitHub example of 
closed versus open network where the market logic is if i can put gates around all my ip it is valuable i can license it i can sell it i can sell my software i'll make more money the reality is in complex systems that actually people will find ways around that and the github example you know microsoft learned the hard way and actually now have opened up a lot of their underlying ip because the collaborative advantage of sharing information sharing ideas even with what are seemingly competitors gives the collective whole a a greater growth diversity we've talked about and the a lot so i'm not going to go into it but applying different ways of thinking about problems allows you to understand change faster when it's happening around you and the final one which i think we've kind of already talked about but is absolutely crucial is linking tactical activity to long-term strategic aims so recognizing the value of decision making today as part of a big complex system of decision making across the organization to collectively achieve long-term goals and that means as we said getting the whole culture of the organization to recognize what they're for to recognize what they're working towards and giving them the freedom to act independently but act in the best interest of achieving that strategic goal none of that is going to solve the problem none of this is going to make your organization suddenly waterproof or bulletproof to shock system change the VUCA environment what it will do is it will make it resistant and resilient and agile so that when those shocks hit you you can absorb them and you can adapt i'm i'm struck to ask one question which is sort of not orthogonal question all of this i you know by definition, because we have these conversations, I agree with, but they are predicated on people having time to think about these things. You know, you you need someone to be able to take half a step back from the day to day. Do you think we spend enough time? And I, I to, to, to put more context to that, every business, whether it be civilian or military, has a pressure on the number of people they can employ to do things. And I'm really, really sensitive that when we have these conversations, I'm very lucky I'm doing them on my own time because I fear that businesses say, well, there's a lot of chatty, chatty. You're not delivering anything. You're not accountable for anything. And therefore, it feels like it's the thing you do for a day once a year or it's the thing you do because you're doing quarterly planning. Do you think we spend enough time in organizations? I absolutely think the day-to-day gets in the way. But I think like we did at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about the difficulty of the human brain in accepting and understanding exponentials. We've got to recognize that short-term inefficiencies in in complex systems in volatile conditions in uncertain conditions in ambiguous conditions lead to more efficient outcomes in the long run so this we've talked before about you know frederick wimsley taylor's kind of theory of scientific management 
if you know what you're doing, if you know what the output is, if you know that you need to produce widgets, then making them more efficient at producing widgets, making it faster, making it cheaper, making your widgets more precise is going to give you an advantage. If you don't know that widgets are the answer in two years' time, five years' time, 10 years' time, then you need to be inefficient in your production of widgets, taking some of that capacity to explore what comes next after widgets. This is where, when we talk about complex systems, and John Boyd did this, he talked about the organism. We need to stop thinking about our organizations, our companies, our groups, our teams as machines. Having a well-oiled machine is great if your machine is still relevant, but machines don't evolve, organisms do. So we need to stop thinking about our systems as mechanical systems and start thinking of them as organic systems and allowing them the room to grow and develop. And that means accepting some inefficiency. But I tell you what, if you do it now and you accept some inefficiency, the chances are over the long run, you'll be more efficient because when it comes to that system shock, if you haven't started to adapt to it, you're going to have to do a massive course correction. Whereas if you've evolved around the project, like the heat-seeking missile, you are constantly updating where you're going, you have a far smoother journey. And that costs less in the long run. You know what? I think that is the perfect place to to, to bring it to a close for today. I, I started frankly, for the first 30 minutes, thinking this is getting darker and darker. But I I think you saved it at the end by giving some very simple and clear examples of what we can do to cope with that world. And I really think maybe the one takeaway, if, you know, there's a, there's a lot in today's conversation, but the one takeaway is that building inefficiency in order to prepare you for those changes, I think that is some of the most powerful advice or thinking as well as the most difficult. So maybe maybe that's a perfect place to round it off for the day. So thank you for that. Well, I would say, you know, to give it a positive note, in competitive systems, VUCA is an opportunity for those that care because those that don't care will not adapt. So VUCA a bit like rain is an opportunity for the Marine who recognises it's going to keep the enemy's head down. VUCA is an opportunity for those that care. It's a T-shirt. It's a T-shirt. Anyway, but I do want to thank you for listening wherever you are, whoever you are. Uh, please share with your friends. Please go and look at the back catalogue. We are on Twitter battling with biz and we would love to hear more from you. Um, Substack. We will be doing more and more on Substack as well. There's a commitment we've made to each other that we'll put more of our content on there, including uh, transcriptions and other interesting content we can point you to. And last, but by no means least, if you've got any ideas, please send them across on battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. Gareth, thank you very much for your VUCA. And well. we'll speak to you all next time on Battling With Business. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.